0: Welcome to this series of lectures on England's reformations and their legacies. It's a subject which is both too easy and too difficult to talk about. The basic stories that we learned at school are are all too familiar. It's a story that we keep going back to. If it's not a, a founding national myth quite, then it is a shared moment of national trauma. Who are the heroes? Who are the villains? Our best Literary recreations of the subject can't agree on that. Indeed, in these cases, they're openly at each other's throats. The subject can still raise strong passions, given that the principles have all been dead for well over 400 years. A lot of us feel strongly about which of these or other portrayals captures the spirit of the time best. For me, the most compelling of the films is still this one from 1969, um, Genevieve Bujold received an Oscar nomination for her portrayal of Anne Boleyn. Um, she's in her 70s now. A few years ago, she was interviewed by a historian I know who, at the end of the interview, asked her which actress at work today she would like to see playing Anne Boleyn. And Bujold leaned forward and with steel in her eyes said, nobody, Anne is mine. These are stories that many of us still feel invested in. Which is as much as to say there is and there can be no such thing as the English Reformation. A Reformation is a composite event. It's only made visible by being framed in the right way. It's like a war. That's a label that we put onto a particular set of events while we decide that other maybe equally violent acts aren't part of that or maybe of any war. 16th and 17th century English people knew that they were living through an age of religious upheaval. They did not know that it was the English Reformation any more than the soldiers at the Battle of Agincourt knew that they were fighting in the Hundred Years' War. I'm not, in these lectures, going to rehearse the main narrative of events. That story is one whose scaffolding is high politics, although, as we'll see, that's by no means the only way to tell the story. In very brief, during the reign of Henry VIII, who was king from 1509 to 47, England broke away from the papacy and embraced some aspects of the Protestant Reformation that had been unfolding on the continent since Martin Luther first openly defied the church in 1517. During the short reign of Henry's son, Edward VI, from 1547 to 53, England moved in a much more decisively Protestant direction and briefly it looked like it would embrace the version of the Reformation put forward by the Swiss radicals. That was promptly reversed by the Catholic restoration under Queen Mary from 1553 to eight. That was itself overturned by a Protestant restoration under Queen Elizabeth, whose much longer reign lasted until 1603. And not least because of that longevity Elizabeth's so-called religious settlement, it's a questionable label, stuck, and that was Protestant but of a more idiosyncratic kind. Versions of it were maintained by her successors James I and Charles I, at least until civil war swept King Charles from power, cost him his head and pitched England's religious life into turmoil once again. Now there is no doubting the importance of these religious upheavals, they permanently changed England and by extension, the many other countries on which English culture has made its mark. But what does it mean? How can we best tell the story or the stories? There is no single master narrative of all this turmoil. There can't be. It was played out at every level of an increasingly diverse society, as highly visible political changes and shifts in public religion shaped and were shaped by the lives of millions of people. The way that you choose to tell the story is governed by what you think is important and what's trivial, whether there are heroes or villains that you want to celebrate or to condemn, and by the legacies and the lessons that you think matter. You choose your frame and that gives you the story that you want. So, these lectures are not going to tell the story of the English Reformation. They're going to tell the stories of six English Reformations, six stories of religious change in 16th and 17th century England. They're parallel, they're overlapping, but each has a somewhat different chronological frame, cast of characters, and set of pivotal events, and each one has left a different legacy. I leave it to you to make the choice between them. Certainly none of them is the whole truth, although I think I can promise you that they will be more accurate than some of the versions which have been around in recent years. Um, I promise you that will be the last film reference. Uh, The best I can offer is to say that these stories are as accurate as the 20 odd years I've been working on some different aspects of the subject can make them. What I'm not gonna tell you is which one of them is closest to my heart. You're free to guess if you wish. The only prejudice that I'll admit to here is my dislike of our of the living forcing our stories too high-handedly onto the dead. They might be dead, but that doesn't mean that they should dance to our tune. So, to the first of our stories, the one that might seem the most unlikely of all, the story of England's Catholic Reformation. Christianity first came to the country that we now call England in Roman times. In the 16th century, in the age of the Reformation, not everyone believed the legend that Joseph of Arimathea had brought the gospel to Britannia in the first century and planted a thorn at Glastonbury. But the equally legendary tale of how Pope Eleutherius had converted King Lucius of the Britons to Christianity in the second century was common knowledge Uh, Moreover, Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor, was claimed as an honorary Briton on the basis that he'd begun his reign in York. But all of this was only prelude. The collapse of Roman rule and a wave of pagan Anglo-Saxon settlement in the 5th century pushed Romano-British Christianity to the island's western fringes, above all to Ireland. The incomers had to be converted afresh. And in the year 597, a far from legendary missionary named Augustine, sent by the equally real Pope Gregory the Great, persuaded King Ethelbert of Kent that he and his kingdom ought to become Christian. Augustine became England's first archbishop at Canterbury, Ethelbert's capital, and his successors down to the present have sat on his throne in the cathedral that he established there. So 16th century English Christians could look back on nearly a thousand years of unbroken history. And whether they thanked the imaginary Eleutherius or the real Gregory, they could and did take pride in being the first nation to be converted at the hands of a pope. For a country almost at the furthest edge of Christendom, this connection to the Apostolic See of Rome was a point of pride. A cynic might say it doesn't cost England much to be ostentatiously papalish because Rome is too far away to make much of a nuisance of itself. Equally, it did mean that England's voice was underrepresented in Rome's councils. There has, as yet, been only a single English pope, Adrian IV, between 1154 and 59. Although, as we'll see in the 16th century, there were a couple of near misses. Still, a strong Anglo-Papal axis was a recurring fact of medieval life. Duke William of Normandy legitimized his conquest of England in 1066 by a papal endorsement. King Henry II was made Lord of Ireland by the grant of that sole English pope in 1155. King John, who is the closest that medieval England comes to having an anti-papal ruler, had by the end of his reign reversed his position so dramatically that he formally granted sovereignty over the entire realm. Innocent III. During the great schism of the late 14th, early 15th century, England was stoutly loyal to the popes in Rome, rejecting the rival claimants in Avignon. In 1485, Pope Innocent VIII gave the new and precariously crowned King Henry VII a much-needed endorsement by blessing his claims to the throne and allowing him to marry his cousin Elizabeth of York. King Henry, who had a sharp eye for propaganda, had the papal bull printed in English for general circulation. The logic was the same as it had been for centuries. Kings and popes had much more to gain by working together than they could ever win from confrontation. They knew that when the relationship broke down, the result was a crisis like the one which led to Thomas Beckett being murdered and his king being forced into a humiliating penance. In a bust up like that, there are no winners. Church and crown didn't need to love each other, but they did genuinely recognize each other's legitimacy. Most kings had at least a streak of genuine piety, and most clergymen at least a streak of national loyalty. This long history has helped foster the myth of the Middle Ages as an undifferentiated age of faith whether that's depicted as an Eden of Catholic innocence or as a thousand years of Babylonian captivity. But of course it's not so. Neither in England nor anywhere else in Europe could Catholic Christendom flourish for so long by remaining static. The Catholic world's astonishing durability is a sign of its power to reinvent itself. Throughout the Middle Ages, established patterns of religious life were challenged by movements of reform, Some consciously led from Rome, many more bubbling up as local initiatives, often in the form of new or rejuvenated orders of monks, nuns, friars, or canons. The church's hierarchy suppressed or even persecuted initiatives, which posed an unacceptable challenge, but it much preferred where it could to tolerate or tame or co-opt them. They were its engine of renewal. If there's a single pattern to this range of reforming initiatives, it's a cycle in which formality, laxity, habit, corruption are periodically challenged by new or revived movements of invigorated discipline and holiness. For example, in the early 13th century, Francis of Assisi founded a new kind of religious order, not enclosed monks, but itinerant friars living among the people committed to lives of absolute poverty deliberately choosing to depend on the day-to-day gifts that they received from the common people but as the Franciscans grew and institutionalized they settled into less rigorous patterns of living made compromises and are then challenged afresh from within their own ranks by a so-called observant movement which sprang up to oppose this laxity. Henry VII with his ready eye for branding opportunities, made himself patron of the English province of the observance. The number of observant Franciscans in England was never very large, but their moral authority was out of all proportion to their numbers. But this cycle of holiness and laxity is a spiral. It's not a circle. Because with each turn, its scope widened from the clerical and monastic elite at its heart to the population at large. The Franciscans, unlike their monastic predecessors, set out to live among and minister to to the common people. Many 14th and 15th century innovations abandoned formal religious orders altogether, allowing laymen and women to live in quasi-monastic communities, sometimes only temporarily rather than as a lifelong vocation. This early 15th century Flemish altarpiece Typically enough for the period, depicts the Virgin Mary as an ordinary Dutch woman in a domestic setting. This is now where holiness is to be found. And notice what she's doing she's reading. The slow spread of literacy, accelerated by the development of printing with movable type in the mid 15th century, symbolized and facilitated a change in the way lay Christians related to their church. They're not just the passive consumers of its sacramental services and the subject of its prayers, they're participating. Books of hours written so that lay people could pray as monks did within their everyday lives become a staple of the book trade. The monasteries had once been a refuge for holiness in a godless world but now their reservoir of holiness is overflowing into that world and soaking into it. So when we say that the English church in the early 16th century was hungry for reform, that was not an unusual or an alarming condition. Loyal, earnest churchmen were painfully aware that the church fell short of its ideals, even though compared realistically both to its own past and to the rest of Latin Christendom, the English church is in pretty good shape. Its bishops are an impressive body of men. In most European countries the bishops were drawn almost exclusively from the high nobility and their spiritual qualifications were let's say variable. But the English and Welsh bishops were a remarkably meritocratic bunch. Most of them men of middling or even humble birth who'd risen up through England's two substantial universities. There aren't many great theologians amongst them, although there are some like John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester, the most internationally celebrated theologian which 16th century England produced. But many of them are able lawyers and administrators, equal to the task of managing their vast institution and furthering and strengthening its discipline. England's parish clergy as well were unusually well-educated and well-disciplined by European standards. To take one simple, easy-to-measure disciplinary question, Catholic priests were and are, of course, supposed to be celibate. In many regions, this rule was widely flouted Um, in parts of Switzerland, attempts to enforce celibacy by levying fines on misbehaving priests had evolved into a system whereby, in effect, priests paid an annual fee to the bishop to be allowed to have a common-law wife, and the bishop's finances depended on the regular flow of such fees. In most of England, by contrast, the law was genuinely enforced. Maybe most importantly of all, England's lay people, or many of them, were hungry to be brought deeper into the church's life. They wanted the spiral to widen out to include them. The plainest sign of success in England was that a dissident movement offering more radical lay empowerment, the diffuse sect known as the Lollards, never won any kind of mass following after its brief flowering in the late 14th century. We'll come back to them in the final lecture of this series. But As historians, we can look with realistic eyes at the late medieval English church and we can say, fair's fair, it's in decent shape. But for the church's most ambitious leaders and for the most zealous and earnest laypeople, good enough was not good enough. Modest success only underlined how much more there was to be done. There's been a lot of talk about anti-clericalism, Hatred and contempt for priests in the Middle Ages. It's certainly a widespread phenomenon. Corrupt priests were the butt of jokes from Sicily to the Shetlands. But that doesn't mean that the jokers rejected the church. Everybody nowadays jokes about corrupt politicians, but that doesn't mean that you reject representative democracy, not necessarily. It's useful to break anti-clericalism down into two distinct variants. One is anti-sacredotalism, the scornful rejection of the priesthood as a body, irredeemably corrupt, grounded on self-serving theological error. This is the view of disgusted non-participants and of revolutionaries. It was, of course, going to become one of the driving forces of the Protestant Reformation. But it's not terribly widespread, especially in England. And even within that camp, there's more non-participation than there is revolution. The other variety is hyper-clericalism. This is the conviction that the priesthood is a high and holy vocation, that priests hold and transmit an awesome responsibility. And if you start with that idealistic view and then measure actual priests against it, the only response is going to be disappointment and indeed anger. We, as historians, can look at the late medieval priesthood and say, well, the glass is half full, even nine-tenths full. But for the hyperclericalists, no degree of falling short was acceptable. They didn't want to overthrow the church. They wanted to perfect it, to make it what it should be. And this made them into its most unstinting, loving critics. So the most damning assessments of the late medieval church come from churchmen. From insiders, they've spent so long gazing at the stars that wherever they are seems like a gutter. And their determination to pursue their glorious vision isn't a sign of the church's weakness, but of its strength. By the early 16th century, these restless ambitions have begun to merge with a new movement for reform that's sweeping Christendom, and which put down particularly deep roots in England. Christian humanism as historians call it, is the the latest turn of that medieval spiral of reform. It drew on the movement of scholarly renewal that we call the Renaissance, that is in very brief a movement in 14th and 15th century Italy to rediscover the literary and artistic heritage of the Greek and Roman world, to measure their own culture against that ancient heritage and inevitably to find it wanting. It's a more or less secular movement in its beginning, hence this term humanism, which doesn't mean secular atheism in the modern sense, but rather the study of the humanities, which they contrasted to the study of divinity, the queen of the sciences. But the same method to recover the lost past, to weigh it in the balance against the present, and, and then to act accordingly, that's all too easy to apply to the life of the church too. Famously, the most important prophet of this Christian humanism was the Dutch monk Desiderius Erasmus, a sharp-tongued, peripatetic, penny-pinching, brilliantly entrepreneurial scholar who could switch on a dime from scabrous satire into soaring spiritual vision. Erasmus spent several years in England and inspired a generation of English scholars, partly thanks to him, his closest English friend Thomas More, won a continent-wide reputation in his own right. Fittingly enough, Moore was a layman, not a priest. And his teasing vision of an ideal society in his book, Utopia from 1516, summed up the Christian humanists' dreams. In this imagined land, the actual priests are very few and very holy but the entire population lives in such simplicity and purity that the island of Utopia, in effect, amounts to a giant monastery. They despise wealth, they live in common, they prize learning, justice, and charity over rights and superstitions. Utopia is a place where the spiral of reform has reached its outer limit, it includes everyone. And the book's opening chapter makes explicit the contrast with Moore's home island, where the rich and powerful claimed to be Christians, but had forgotten peace, mercy, and the needs of the poor. Now, this is a satire, but Christian humanists do more than offer counsels of perfection from the sidelines. Moore discusses in this book whether it's better to preserve your innocence by steering clear of power politics or to get your hands dirty in the hope of doing something good, which is not a theoretical discussion, he himself reluctantly entered Henry VIII's service and ended paying dearly for it. Another much more compromised, but much more powerful reformer was already pushing this agenda forward. I'm thinking of Cardinal Archbishop Thomas Woolsey, the butcher's son from Ipswich, whose career embodies the meritocratic possibilities of the English church. Wolsey's administrative omnicompetence made him the effective ruler of England on Henry VIII's behalf from about 1514 until 1529. And he's been remembered more for ambition and corruption than for reform and idealism. But this is the man who turned a narcissistic, warmongering king's diplomatic difficulties into a hard-nosed scheme for universal perpetual peace between the European powers, with England and the papacy acting as guarantors. Nothing like the Treaty of London of 1518 had ever been attempted before. The failure of this impossible project, this sort of first draft of the League of Nations, is hardly surprising. What's astonishing is that Wolsey secured broad international agreement to it, and for a few mirage-like months, it seemed to be working. In this context, his own perfectly realistic ambitions to be elected Pope, looked less ignoble. In the end, England was too weak a power and Henry VIII too capricious a king for Wolsey to use them to leverage humanist dreams into existence. But there was nothing to stop his ambition and idealism and cunning from reshaping his own country. If England's Catholic Reformation had a start date, it was 1518, when Wolsey was made a papal legate with sweeping powers to reshape the English church. This is almost the first time that the English church, divided as it was between the two provinces of Canterbury and York, had been treated as a single entity. The flagship project that Wolsey launched with these new powers was a sign of what might be to come. A huge amount of the English church's considerable wealth was tied up in monastic houses. Communities whose cloistered piety was of course laudable but was several turns of the spiral behind the times, and not all of the monks fully lipped up to their order's ideals. Woolsey used his new powers to close down a swathe of problematic or inconvenient houses, redirecting the funds to a much more fashionably pious purpose, education. A splendid new school in his hometown of Ipswich would feed into a splendid new college at his old University of Oxford. You can see the college behind him in the portrait. But that was only the first wave. Woolsey was laying plans for a much wider reshaping of the monastic estate to rebuild the English church into a Christian humanist powerhouse, its resources serving the people rather than itself, placing England at the forefront of the budding renewal of the whole Catholic world. His project manager, for this tricky enterprise, was another compromised Catholic reformer. What made Thomas Cromwell stand out from London's crowd of ambitious jobbing lawyers was his years spent in Italy as a soldier, merchant, and all-purpose man on the make. As Dermot McCulloch's biography of a couple of years ago shows us, Cromwell's Italian contacts made him the man to find the sculptors and the artists whom Wolsey wanted to employ. These are some of the statues that he commissioned for Wolsey's tomb. They're now in the v But Cromwell had picked up more in Italy than an ear for languages and an eye for marble. Like many Northern Europeans who visited Rome at the height of the Renaissance papacy, he left with a hunch that the Pope was part of the problem, not part of the solution, and that the cutting edge of the spiral, spiral of reform was now a long way from the old centre it also gave Cromwell a very Italian sense of what reform might mean. England's Catholic Reformation, that beckoning mirage, would have been a version of the Italian Reformation. The Italian Reformation is a story that's now so thoroughly forgotten that the phrase sounds like a contradiction. But during the 1520s and 30s, it seemed like a real possibility. Much of the structure of the church in Italy was genuinely corrupt or dysfunctional, and so reformers worked around it, creating new orders and fraternities, exploring patterns of simplified piety. In Germany, when a dispute about the doctrine of salvation triggered by a friar called Martin Luther flared up in 1517 to 18, it quickly turned into a slanging match in which all the talk was of obedience, submission, heresy. But in Italy, idealistic, loyal churchmen, the people who called themselves the spirituali, preferred to avoid that kind of confrontation. They were keen to do with Luther what had been done with so many other disruptive reformers over the centuries, to absorb, co-opt, house-train his insights, views which pushed Catholic orthodoxy in a particular direction, but which didn't yet contradict it. Now, to be sure, the reformation that Ita- Italy's Spirituali championed didn't come to pass. They spent a couple of decades trying to forge creative compromises until they found that in their polarised age, that only won them suspicion from both sides. And eventually, after the failure of a last attempt at constructive religious peace in 1541, they were forced to choose sides or to retire into obscurity. But we can easily imagine that if Tudor marriage politics hadn't intervened, the reformation of the spirituali is the kind of reformation that England would have had. Such an England would have proudly held on to its thousand-year tradition of loyal papalism, but the result wouldn't have been an extension of the medieval church frozen in time. In this alternative history, England's monasteries wouldn't have been suppressed systematically the way they were in the 1530s, but nor would they have sailed on into the modern era untouched. Eager Catholic reformers, keen to build a nation of earnest believers, wary of formalism and superstition, would have continued where Wolsey and Cromwell had begun, systematically redirecting the monastery's enormous wealth to more fashionable purposes like education, missionary work, the relief of the poor. England's two heavyweight energetic universities, especially Erasmus's Cambridge, which is by far the more daring of the two at this date, would have incubated scholarly innovations that would have turned the radical insights of the Christian humanists into practical programs for reform. The long-delayed publication of a Bible in English, which even as fiercely loyal a Catholic as Thomas More recognized was both inevitable and right, would have followed before much longer. And it's not all just a matter of doctrines. In a century of rapid economic change, populations are rising, wages are falling, landowners are driving their tenants off the land and into destitution. A reforming Catholic church would have pushed back against this new economy and its consequences. It probably wouldn't have pushed back very effectively. Deep economic changes are difficult to stop with moralizing denunciations, but it would certainly have burnished its own moral authority in the process. The way things turned out, defending the Commonwealth against depredations like the enclosure of land and the blocking of rivers with weirs became a Protestant cause in the 1540s and 50s. But there's no doctrinal reason it should have been so. Reforming Catholic bishops found this moral case just as compelling as the Protestants did. Now, you were promised a history lecture and I've just served you up a steaming plate full of imagination. But I do think there are reasons to take this fantasy seriously. One of those reasons is named Reginald Pole. Pole was a man to conjure with, a young cousin of Henry VIII whose fam- family had a dangerously strong claim to the throne in their own right. His decision to spend the early 1530s studying in Italy was political as well as academic. He did not approve of the king's marital adventures. In 1536, he broke a long and ominous silence to denounce them in strident terms. Henry VIII's propagandists called him a traitor, and he replied, Rome is my country. In response, Henry tried to have him assassinated and judicially murdered most of his family, including his aged mother, for the unpardonable crime of having Pole blood in their veins. Pope Paul III made matters worse by making Pole a cardinal. He became the English government's favorite bogeyman, icon of treachery. But his Catholicism was reforming as well as unstinting. Rome was his country, but so was Italy. He became intimately involved with the spirituali, especially as some of them found cautious favor at the papal court. He was fully supportive of one of the great might have been projects of the Reformation era, the summit conference at the German city of Regensburg, between leading Catholic and Protestant theologians, which successfully thrashed out an agreed formula for understanding the doctrine of salvation, the issue which had sparked the Protestantism to begin with. And then agonizingly, the summit founded on the authority of the Pope and the nature of the mass. Paul was one of those who jumped towards Rome and Catholic Orthodoxy when the middle ground gave way underneath him. So much so that Pope Paul III made him one of the three legates who were to preside over the planned General Council of the Catholic Church, which assembled at the northern Italian city of Trent in 1545. But if Poles' loyalties were never in question, nor did he forget his old ideals. At the Council of Trent, he lost the argument. His Lutheran-inflected views of salvation were rejected in favor of a more robustly traditional formulation. But Paul and the surviving spirituality weren't out of the game yet. When Paul III died in 1549, Poole was the early favorite to succeed him. In one early tally, the conclave came within a single vote of the two-thirds majority, which would have elected the second English pope. It's another tantalizing might have been. A young, idealistic, energetically reforming pontiff determined both to hold the center and also to widen the circle in an effort to bring home as many of the sundered Protestant brethren as possible. In the event, Paul's candidacy failed partly because he himself didn't want to press the case, that idealism again. He was happy instead to agree on a compromise candidate. His candidacy also failed because one of his former brethren amongst the spirituali, Cardinal Carafa, accused him of straying from an innocent wish for reunion into a dalliance with heresy. Now, this would be simply the tale of one eccentric expatriate's near misses, if not for the second reason to imagine England's Catholic Reformation. The greatest might have been of them all. In 1553, England's young Protestant King Edward VI, who we'll meet properly in later lectures, died and his inept attempts to rig the succession failed. The throne fell to his eldest sister, Mary, a committed Catholic whose firm intention from the beginning was to end her native lands 20 year nightmare of schism and heresy and to return it to its historic role as a bastion of the Church of Rome. And to that end, she and Pope Julius III immediately agreed that the obvious person to negotiate this Catholic restoration and then to serve as Archbishop of Canterbury was none other than Reginald Pole. As it turned out, this Catholic restoration was short lived. On the 17th of November 1558, Queen Mary and Cardinal Pole both died of quite different diseases within hours of each other. And the new Queen Elizabeth led the country back into schism. But as historians have dug into this brief episode in recent years, it's become unmistakable that the Catholicism of Mary's reign was neither doomed nor a medieval throwback. It was a taste of what England's Catholic Reformation might have been. One key to this is that it was a coalition. It brought a few exiled idealists like Pole together with the majority of English churchmen who'd gone reluctantly along with Henry VIII's desires. These two parties didn't entirely trust each other and had somewhat different agendas, but at least for as long as they both lived, the result was a creative and constructive tension rather than a damaging rivalry. So the Queen restored a few of the dissolved monasteries, but on nothing like the huge scale that some of her Protestant subjects had expected and feared. And most of those re-foundations, especially her flagship foundation at Westminster Abbey, the only one of the restored monasteries that's given a substantial endowment. They're not mere revivals, they're a blueprint for a new slimmed down monastic estate that would be at the rest of the nation's service. England had not taken the route to this point that Wolsey had imagined, but the destination is not that different. It shows that the energies of this new regime are focused not on a handful of elite institutions, but on the church's coalface in the parishes. England's parish churches had in their eyes been devastated by the reforms and asset stripping under Henry VIII and Edward VI. Now the population were instructed to rebuild. And remarkably, despite the fact that successive regimes had plundered their pious donations, they dug into their pockets and built again. A comprehensive study of all the surviving parish account books from the reign Has demonstrated almost universal compliance with the minimum level of repair which the regime required, and in many cases, much more. There was still, by the time the Queen died, an enormous amount remaining to be done. Rebuilding takes much longer and costs much more than destruction. In the asymmetric warfare between Catholic and Protestant, which was fought out in church buildings across the continent, the Catholics whose worship needed physical furnishings and paraphernalia, were at a systematic disadvantage. But the scale of the effort in England in the 1550s bodes well for the church's ability to regenerate itself. The pious ingenuity of some of the shortcuts that were employed, so painted canvases instead of carved crucifixes, or gravestones cannibalised to make altars, testify to the earnest impatience of England's Catholic majority to put the past behind them. But buildings and furnishings were only a means to an end. The real purpose of Mary's Catholic Reformation was the rebuilding of the faith. And in this case, the effort was not to turn back the clock, but to harness and redirect some of the changes that her father's and brother's regimes had made. In the front rank of this effort was Edmund Bonner, the Bishop of London. This is the closest we have to a contemporary portrait of him. It's a bit problematic. It may look as if he's doing some sort of charming, rustic dance. Um, He's, in fact, whipping a prisoner. This is a hostile caricature. Um, But it was made during his lifetime, and he is said to have commented angrily that he didn't know how they'd got such a good likeness of him. So it'll have to do. Anyway, Bonner was a tough-minded, energetic administrator. In the 1530s, he'd been a protege of Thomas Cromwell's, but his increasingly plain religious conservatism led to his deprivation in 1549. Restored by Mary in 53, he set about re-Catholicizing a city that was a hotbed of heresy. In 1554, Bonner began a full-scale visitation of his diocese, a process which lasted a full year and involved preaching and careful inquiry. Inquiry after heresy and laxity in every parish in preparation for easter 1555 he ordered every person individually to confess their sins and be absolved for participating in the 20-year schism and accompanying heresies and that included every individual being specifically quizzed on their faith in the mass and in the pope When the visitation finally concluded, Bonner, who'd always been something of a a techno geek as far as the the new technology of print was concerned, great enthusiast for using it, um, rounded it off by publishing a book which all the clergy in the diocese were required to use. This book, A Profitable and Necessary Doctrine, was a summary of the Christian faith, which drew on a similar formulary published under Henry VIII's authority a decade earlier. It also contained a set of pro-forma sermons that drew heavily on a similar set issued by Edward VI's government, of course, adapted to bring them into line with Catholic orthodoxy. This is exactly the sort of creative assimilation of the best reformist thought that the Italian spirituali would have recognized. Over 10,000 copies of this book are printed, enough in theory for every parish in England to own one. Bonner's project provides important clues to the regime's strategy. Printed books were a part of that strategy, but only in a supporting role. The heart, again, was the parish church and the priest within it. Mary's government had to work with the priests that it had, not the ones it might have ideally liked to have, but she does what she could to purge the clergy of the most serious troublemakers. And for this, she used that old shibboleth of a well-disciplined church, priestly celibacy. Back in 1549, Edward VI's government had allowed priests to marry in line with its Protestant principles. And a minority of them, about a sixth, had done so. These were now summarily dismissed. Those who abandoned their wives and came crawling back were permitted to seek priestly employment elsewhere. It's the most sweeping clerical purge carried out by any English government in the 16th century. It's the priests who were the target audience for Bonner's books. The primary means by which Poole and his allies wanted to rebuild English Catholicism wasn't the book, but the sermon. The common assertion that Paul was wary of preaching is quite mistaken. So too is the claim that he banned the Jesuits, the up-and-coming vanguard of Catholic reform, from sending a mission to England. He just wanted to coordinate their efforts with his own. All in all, it was a pretty shrewd approach. Books are inherently discursive, disputatious, a cacophony of voices competing for the book buyer's loyalty whereas the sermon, as a medium, is inherently authoritative, a single voice speaking for the church six feet above contradiction. It allowed Catholic doctrine to be taught without issuing an invitation for it to be discussed. Paul wanted to avoid getting into public debates with his Protestant critics on the old principle that wrestling in mud taints the winners and the losers alike which is a hint for all that I've been rather sunny about it, England's Catholic Reformation always, and of necessity, had another face to it. Orthodoxy's boundaries might be inclusive and generous and progressive and imaginative, but in the end, there did have to be boundaries, and the need to enforce them had explicitly been a part of the Catholic Reformation from the beginning. England's greatest Christian humanist, Thomas More, was also its most pitiless hammer of heretics. As Lord Chancellor, head of the kingdom's secular courts, Moore worked with rare energy along like minded bishops to arrest suspected heretics and to roll up their networks. He was involved in half a dozen burnings, although there isn't any evidence to support the persistent rumours that he had prisoners tortured. To modernise, it is hard to reconcile. Thomas More the principled reformer with Thomas More the merciless persecutor and Robert Bolt and Hilary Mantel each chose to emphasize one of those two facets almost to the exclusion of the other. But More himself did not see the contradiction. Reform and repression depend on one another. The more gently the Catholic reformers tended their sheep, the more freely they let them roam, the more fiercely they needed to fight against the wolves who threatened to tear them from the true faith. Moore's purge ended when he was forced out of office in 1532, but as we'll see, trials and executions for heresy would continue apace through Henry VIII's reign. And when Mary restored Catholicism, she also restored the old persecutory apparatus. The scale of the burnings during her reign, 298 known executions plus 20 deaths in prison, had no precedent in England and few in Europe, although we have to admit that by modern standards of mass killing, this looks positively amateurish. In an important sense, it was unintended. Mary and her bishops expected that most of those charged with heresy would give way and recant their beliefs to save their lives, as had usually been the case in the past. The new metal of these Protestants was a surprise to everyone including themselves. But when the regime's bluff was called, it chose to follow through, which it did not need to have done. The result was a four-year purge that began with the most prominent bishops, like the Bishop of Gloucester here, and, and other preachers, and then spread out to entire clandestine Protestant congregations. It's not simply an English phenomenon persecution of Protestantism was simultaneously ramping up in France, the Netherlands, elsewhere. And in 1555, two years into Mary's restoration, Cardinal Paul's old colleague and rival, Cardinal Carafa, was elected Pope Paul IV. His reformism had now taken a grim turn. Having purged Rome of infidels by creating the city's first ghetto for Jews, he now set out to purge Catholic Christendom of error. In 1559, he would promulgate the first modern index of prohibited books. But before that, he renewed his feud with Cardinal Poole, who he was now convinced was a crypto-Protestant. Farcically, by 1558, the most serious opponent of Poole's mission to rebuild English Catholicism was the Pope, who was refusing to allow any English bishops to be appointed and had begun inquisitorial proceedings against Pole himself. Now, to modernise, all this repression looks like a betrayal of the energetic creativity of Catholic reform, just as Thomas More's humane sophistication seems to sit ill with his merciless pursuit of heresy. That wasn't how it seemed at the time. Drawing ever more Christians into the church's widening circle of holiness was one thing. Standing by while a handful of heretics tried to pull the whole structure down was another. And we should note it worked, or it might have worked. Moore's campaign was well on the way to throttling English Protestantism when it was interrupted. We can imagine that had he had another few years, the English Protestant movement would have died in its cradle. In Mary's reign, The Protestant leaders were either arrested and executed or forced into exile, and the process of breaking up their wider networks of support was well underway. The Italian spirituali had been suppressed by Cardinal Carafa in much the same way when he'd revived the Inquisition in Italy in 1542. And in Spain, the Inquisition there had put a stop to the Protestant Reformation before it had even begun. So, England could have had a Catholic Reformation. It nearly did, more than once. In many ways, it might have been a fine thing, far richer, perhaps more creative, almost certainly less bloody than what actually happened. But there would certainly have been a
1: price. Thank you. Well, that was absolutely fascinating and tremendous. One of the Incredible what ifs of, of history. And you've generated, not surprisingly, quite a few questions and remarks. Um, and quite a lot of interest about Reginald Pohl. And one of the questions uh, I've got here, which is someone who wants a little bit more, is could you just say a little bit more about Henry VIII's attempt to assass- assassinate uh, Reginald Pohl? The question I hadn't heard about this before. <laughs>
0: That, that makes it sound slightly more dramatic than it might have been it's not that you know we, we have a day of the jackal moment when he ducks to avoid the bullet at the right at the right moment um henry repeatedly urges that there should be attempts to have him murdered he wants to keep, you know he's, he's he puts a price in his head and wants people to get close to him Paul is well aware of the the danger that he is in and keeps trusted people around him. Um, there are attempts by some of Henry's diplomats in Italy to make it happen. They never get very close. But it's a, it's a serious project. Um, and it's certainly the case that any kind of direct contact with Pol and his circle in exile is presumptive evidence of treason as far as, as, as Henry VIII is concerned, which, of course, is one of the things that makes it harder for any potential assassins to get close
1: to his circle. Very good. Very interesting. Now, there's a bit more poll questioning going on here from, um, from our uh, audience. Um, what would have happened uh, to the Catholic Reformation if Pole and Mary had survived, especially considering the Pope's hostility to Pole, and the unpopularity of Spanish influence in England?
0: (laughs) Very good question. Um, uh, Of course, the simple answer is we don't know. Um, So because it's a counterfactual, we get to make it up. Um, Pole's difficulty with the papacy, Pole and Mary's difficulties with the papacy, are, are really quite serious by 1558, um however they die with paul iv himself in 1560 so let's assume that that part of the history carries on and and things would 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 likely have have settled down after another year or so of a, of acute crisis the the relationship with spain is is a problem, the point when that really could have brought Mary's reign down is when the Spanish marriage is first proposed in 1554, um, when there's a, a, a local but really quite serious rebellion in Kent and there's a moment when it looks like the City of London might be might be taken. Um, that's defeated and one of the things that takes the heat out of that issue is that Mary's government resolves it really plays a diplomatic blinder in, in terms of the marriage negotiations with, with Spain, um, such that if um, Mary and her Spanish husband Philip had had children, then that child would not have become king of Spain, you know, the, the, the heir to a huge empire that would have been based in Madrid, but would instead have inherited the English and Dutch the English and Netherlandish territories, and so become um, king of a very substantial cross-channel empire whose natural center of gravity would have been London. Um, this is, is, is an astonishingly good deal for the English to have, to have negotiated. Um, of course, the, the real problem which is underpinning Mary's reign is that she doesn't have children. Um, and so the question of the succession, of finding a Catholic succession um, that dogs every Tudor regime from Henry VIII onward, um, is, is still hanging over her. And if she, if she you know, survived that particular illness, that problem would not have gone away. There are solutions to that problem. There were, there, there were potential Catholic candidates that could have been found but it might have been difficult to do it while Elizabeth Tudor kept her head on her shoulders. There's another variant of that question, which is what would have happened if when Mary died, Poole had not, and the new Queen Elizabeth had found herself inheriting a um, royal prince and cardinal as Archbishop of Canterbury, who might have proved rather trickier to deal with than some of the internal opposition she did face
1: face but that's a different problem that's a very intriguing prospect and I think we have got time to un- ask another question which is related directly to that which is a very straightforward question which someone has asked which is uh, was Elizabeth tolerant <laughs> <laughs> um I think
0: the short answer to that is no um but she was cautious uh, and wary of what she could get away with. Um, Elizabeth is very well aware to begin with, and, and possibly almost excessively aware, that her regime is walking on eggshells, that unlike Mary's restoration, hers is met with a considerable degree of unease and suspicion, although also with you know great enthusiasm by a a, a relatively small minority um, and so her attempt to to bring in a a, a a new Protestant settlement to make it stick is is done slowly and carefully, and she spends the first ten years or so soothing her country into it. She imposes a, a fairly clear set of rules in the, the, the new legislation and injunctions that are passed in the spring and summer of 1559, but she enforces it with, with quite a light touch. Um, this The famous claim that she didn't want to make um, windows into men's souls is, is not her line, that's, that's Francis Bacon's um, characterization of, of, of her policy. Um, and it's fair enough, but that's not because she had some great belief in freedom of conscience. Um, it's that you don't want to look into your subject's souls because you're afraid of what you might find. Um, and it makes more sense to let them have their own space and wait. Her, her great hope, and I think it's vindicated by the way events turn out, is that time is on her side and that if she can impose some semblance of a Protestant Reformation onto her country and hold it in place for long enough, then eventually the plaster will set Um, and generational change will mean that the, the, the Catholic generation will peacefully die out and a Protestant country will grow up almost by default. Of course, for many of her Protestant subjects, this softly, softly approach is a symbol of everything that's wrong with what they see as, as, as but half
1: a Reformation. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, the last question I've got um, is a question whether you could expand a little bit on the theology of the spirituale um, and how they disagreed or agreed with the prevailing orthodoxy. That's
0: tricky because there are uh... They're not a group who have a program or a clearly defined orthodoxy to sign up to, um, and a lot of it is simply you know, garden variety Christian humanism. They're wanting to pick up on many of the sorts of themes that Erasmus was 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 interested in. You know, of moving away from ceremonial and ostentation towards emphasis on the inner life and pious simplicity, but. The the difference and the particular debt that they have to to Luther um, is an interest in a softened version of his theology of justification by faith alone. They are not interested, they're very much not interested, in the strong predestinarian versions of this, which Luther himself very much holds and Calvin famously doubles down on. Um, But the notion that it should be possible for the Christian life to be one governed by inward piety and repentance rather than outward acts of penance is one that they find very appealing. And Poole is 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 one of a great many who, who think that it's possible to take that sort of spiritualizing insight from what had become in their eyes, a rather formalised structure of piety, and to apply it while remaining within the framework of, of Catholic orthodoxy. This is what he argues for at the Council of Trent. It's an argument that he loses, and it's partly because he loses that argument that Cardinal Carafa is able to, to
1: pursue him and make a, at least a prima facie plausible charge of heresy against him. We've got two minutes, and I'm going to very cheekily ask you a question of my own, because I think it's quite an, quite an important one, which is that um, if it wasn't for Henry VIII's marital problems, and if uh, Woolsey and Cromwell had pursued the Catholic Reformation that you suggested that they might be interested in, do you think Henry VIII would have been interested and supported them? Yes, I think he would. Uh,
0: if only because ostentatious piety and grand gestures are very much his thing. I mean, this is a king, whatever else you think of him, in my opinion, is not high, um, who was tremendously good at the theater and the showmanship of royalty. Um, He was also genuinely taken by some of the ideas of of the Christian humanists. He liked surrounding himself with the best and most fashionable Scholars, um, and had a modest taste for that sort of, of scholarship himself. Enjoyed dabbling in it and being flattered for the for the quality of his um, of his attempts. And if you look at, for example, one of the the great pet projects of at the very end of his life, um, when having dissolved all all these monasteries, um, which he does so on. Yeah, with, with the rhetoric of claiming to use it for reforming purposes. In fact, it's almost all ploughed into fighting an entirely futile war with France. Um, but in the last year of his life, when there's a brief possibility that he might seize all the assets of the universities as well and, and pour them down the same bottomless pit, he instead reverses and decides to, to use a chunk of monastic wealth to found two huge new colleges, Trinity College um, at Cambridge and Christ Church in Oxford on the ruins of Wolsey's old foundation. Um, and that sort of, of ostentatious creation of, 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 of pious novelties was the sort of thing that he could very much have thrown his, his weight behind. Whether the patient interest in the work parish level would have appealed to him, I think we can doubt. But he wouldn't have minded if somebody else wanted to get on with that in his name. Fascinating.
1: Absolutely fascinating. Well, what a great lecture. What a great evening. And uh, you're coming back to give your second lecture on the 2nd of December. Um, uh, yes, that's unwanted right. The Reformation?
0: The very one. We Thank look you. forward to it very much. Thank you. Thank you.